Hello, I'm James George and welcome to Life in Football, the podcast that interviews top professionals working in different fields within our beautiful game. If you love football and dream about working full-time in sport, or if you're just a little bit nosy, then you've come to the right place. This week I'm joined by Chris and Adam, who are first team physios for Luton and QPR. This episode is a great insight into what it's like working every day with top professional players, and we get to peek behind the curtains of two championship clubs. Hi Chris and Adam, how are you guys today? I'm good, James. Great, thanks. How are you? I am very good, thank you. So let's start by finding out how both of you, first of all, got into to physio. And first of all, tell us a bit about where you're up to at the moment. What club? What clubs are you at? Okay, do you want to go first, Chris? And then um, yeah, I can it. go first. Um, yeah, Chris Phillips. I'm first in physio at Luton Town. Um, been here now for it's my fifth season overall. I initially went there as an academy physio, um, and yeah, roles kind of evolved into that. And you, Adam? So yeah, I'm yeah Adam Wright. I am at the moment. I'm the first team at Queens Park Rangers Football Club. So um, I've been there similar to Chris actually five seasons. So yeah, at the moment, kind of yeah, my main role is working with the first team and also specialising in uh, a lot of the rehabilitation that goes on there for the long term injuries. So I kind of uh, bounce between kind of two roles at the moment, which is good. So being a physio is one of those jobs that many of us think about when we're a teenager. And I thought about it because I was like, how can I get into working full time in football? And so I was thinking about doing that job. So, Chris, how did you go about becoming a physio? And then the second question to that is, did you go about being a physio so that you could work in football? Um, I think, obviously, first of all, we all have them dreams, don't we, of being a professional footballer. Obviously knew pretty early on that I was never going to make the grade for it, so the next best option was to find some route into not necessarily football, but elite sport. Um, and then kind of football was always a main interest of mine, so then branched into that. So um, left school, went to study sports therapy at the University of Hertfordshire initially, and where I gained great experience. I was able to go on a placement year, spent a year working at Barnet Football Club, which was the best thing I could ever have done, to be fair, working full-time. Um, in sport so kind of give me the real appetite to go on and really kick on and see what I could do and how I could do it from there went on to uh, study physio at Brunel that's hence where I uh, I met Adam and yeah studied a physio degree was there for three years completed all the modules we needed to and yeah here we go here I am now today so did you when you finished university did you get a job straight in football or did you have to do quite, you know, year two, three years as a normal physio before you got into football? So my kind of route from from my sports therapy degree is I spent a year working, doing all sorts. So I was balancing three jobs. I was working part-time at Leighton Orient within the academy. And I also then was doing some part-time private work, which um, helped to supplement that as well. But actually my... my Beat or boast most of my hours of working and employment at the time come from working in Waitrose in the supermarket, just trying to keep the dream alive, if you like, making sure I could still earn enough money, but also do what I enjoyed on the side of it and try and really push that that area. That's pretty cool that you knew straight away what you wanted to do and got managed to get a job straight away at Leighton Orient. So you didn't have to do the hard graft of five years, you know, working for the NHS, for example, and then having to make the switch over. I think a lot of it helped with the uh, the connections I'd formed during the placement year that I had. 
in between my second and third year. Um, on top of that, one of my, my lecturers, Joel Harris, was um, someone who was in, has been involved in, in football for a long time. So again, he kind of any questions you had, you could go to him and he'd help you push towards them and give you the right uh, ideas to, to find them pathways, if you like. Awesome. And Adam, what about you? What was your journey? Yeah, I suppose mine's slightly different, um, as, as Chris has mentioned. So I come, my background originally is rugby. So I played rugby all through uh, a young age, through county, southwest England, all the way up. And my first degree, I did sports science at Loughborough, and that was kind of mainly going as a kind of rugby degree there to, to play. And unfortunately, I had a series of injuries, knee injuries or an ACL injury. And um, that thing kind of put a bit of a kibosh on the future progression. So I was always hoping to, you know, end up being a pro at uh, full time in, in that sport. Um, but obviously, as we know, these injuries happen and they you know, put a squash on those sort of things. But um, it led to opening new doors, really. So from studying sports science at Loughborough, then I kind of decided that obviously I'm not going to make it in, in that sport. And I spent had a lot of experience of being injured out for a while. So I kind of thought that I could help people because I felt like my rehab wasn't that good at the time to get me back. So I thought maybe that would be a good area to go. So that kind of got me into physio to start with. And it's kind of similar to Chris. Uh, we studied uh, Brunel together. So kind of I went moved back to London, studied at Brunel while... I was studying at Brunel. I spent a lot of time, similar to Crystal, in the Crystal Palace Academy. So I worked kind of part-time with them, which kind of gave me the insight into a football environment. I always wanted to kind of work in an elite environment. So I kind of put loads of feelers out, just did the basics, send loads of emails out to the top academies in the area around the whole of London, and just to see if there was any way I can come in and shadow and you know, try and get some experience. And uh, lucky, uh, one of the guys at uh, Ricky O'Donoghue, who's now, I think, at Arsenal, he was um, head of academy medicine at Crystal Palace, and he actually knew me from Loughborough. So we made a connection. I started doing part-time work as well as studying the physio degree. And that was kind of a really good kind of look into kind of what it takes to, um, you know, do late nights, covering shifts, putting in like the hard graft, as Chris will probably mention later on. It's, uh, it can be a bit of a, uh, a bit of a journey, but very, very rewarding. So, yeah, that's how kind of I got into it. And then Lee, once I finished my degree, I had a bit of experience. And then luckily I went straight into first team role at Queen's Park Rangers. So I had the interview and got that. And so that was, yeah, that was a kind of straight into a kind of dream, dream job. Obviously really, rugby, rugby was your original dream. So did you yeah. not think about going in, in and helping rugby players? Yeah, no, I, I did at the time. Uh, opportunity arose in academy and um, I had a kind of other options as well, but I wanted kind of a bit of a change suit. I like the, kind of level of football and some of kind of the details you have to go into and it was something kind of refreshing for me to to try a different kind of different sport and through my career I've had to you know kind of learn and learn a lot more about football and especially with kind of the, the pitch rehab and stuff that obviously rugby will come quite naturally to me but it's been a good learning process and I feel that it kind of benefited me having the two sports merged together uh, and the environment. Different type of injuries, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot. You don't generally get as many ACL injuries, ankle injuries, you know, those types of injuries in in football. Whereas in rugby, it's a lot of shoulders, for example. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
high impact injuries, fractures, those sort of things. But yeah, it gives me a good uh, balance. So when we do get shoulder injuries or we do get other things that are not so usual uh, in football, then um, yeah, I can help out with that as well. So. And do you do you both purely work with the first team, or do you help out with like you know the under twenty threes and the youth team as well? Just with the first team solely, um, and then you know sometimes we will help mentor some of the uh, academy physios or problem cases will we'll come up, and then we will we will do that. Or I'll do that. Are you the same, Chris? Yeah, it's the same for us. Yeah, we're. Um by you know in terms of where we're at we're quite a small department across the board so the same as like adam says yeah roles with the first team but also we kind of uh we we help out and we assist in terms of anything that's, that's required um particularly from from a complex case point of view obviously you're both at successful championship clubs at the moment but how does it work in regards to if you were a man city as an example or a chelsea how many physios would they have on a first team squad, and then how many you know do you guys have at your level? I'm intrigued if they spend ridiculous money on every department in football. So I suppose uh, for our, I can talk about my department, but yeah, we have three uh, full time physios and two sports therapists, and also um, the doc there is the head of medical, as well as a sports science team. But I would yeah. Uh, regarding like some of the the bigger clubs, yeah, they would have more assets available. So they definitely have more physios than we would have. Um, they definitely have bigger sports science groups. So yeah, it's just it's just on a, on a larger scale. The job job role, job hours, the intricacy of the injuries, you know, much the same quality of care would be. It's just the the assets they're able to do. You know, they might have six or seven ice baths, or they might take them to cryotherapy. Or they might have extra people come in with yoga teaching and mindfulness and just having that kind of extra resources. But I don't think it ever draws away from the uh, quality of care that we offer. Um, at the moment, it would be it would be the same. We use you know similar specialists in London. Uh, what the the big clubs would use for any operations or anything like that. Is it the same for you, Chris? Yeah, again, well, we're probably slightly different. We've come, we've had a different journey as a football club from from uh, where we were when I first joined in League Two to where we are today in the Championship. So, um, our department consists of Simon, our head of medical, myself, and and Darren Cook, who's our soft tissue therapist, and that's us really. That's our close knit group. Um, but again, as Adam says, you know, other clubs, particularly the bigger clubs, have have a uh, a vaster department with more staffing, which you know you can dedicate a little bit or some more people to some more individuals but ultimately the, the, the delivery of care is is the same if you like obviously as you know there's some some more um facilities which can be used but ultimately i think particularly like most people in these jobs we all try and strive towards the gold standard for everything uh, in and is it do, a, so. does the physio department get bigger as you go up through the leagues generally especially if you get to the premier league would they put any more money in that or would it purely go on new players for example if you get promoted yeah, I think it's a, a, bit, a bit of both. I think um, it may allow you to bring more staff in because sometimes as you, you go up uh, to a Premier League squad, you you have a, a larger squad to, to rotate, so you'll need uh, more physios. Um, but yeah, I think it's very, very dependent. But yeah, you'd expect if, if you're going up another league, you'd need some more resources. Sometimes uh, the level of player as well may 
be, you know, you might have more uh, sports massage uh, therapist or more kind of hands-on sometimes is the way you go up because there's a lot more games, uh, Champions League games, um, cup games, league games, you know, it's quite, um, can be like championship quite ferocious regarding the amount of games. So, yeah, I think that's definitely, um, you know, if we ever, fingers crossed, soon get promoted that, <laughs> I think that'd be something that you would you would look at asset wise to see if you can help and bring better quality of care, more time dedicated to other things, not just physio, right? You can dedicate time to screening or biomechanical assessments, uh, lots of aspects involved in physio to help injury prevention. Because same as me and Chris, we want players available for the manager to use. Um, so we're trying to give them the best availability. And if we can use preventative medicine, um, you know, that's kind of the best way forward at the moment to go. That's a good question for me to ask you then Chris is how is physio developing over the years I remember when I grew up the physio would run on with a cold bucket and sponge and the players might get a quick massage after the game it's developing all the time so what what has it de- developed in the last five years for you in in the role or especially when you were doing work experience is it developing all the time and in what ways is it developing I think that's part of the beauty of the profession, really. It's always developing anyway. Um, and you ask that question in 10 years' time, it'll probably be a completely different answer from myself and Adam. Um, you know, even, I think, again, the probably the best person would be is when I speak to Simon, our head of medical, he's been doing, you know, he's been a physio in football for 27 years. So, yeah, he would definitely say that it's changed. Um, it, it's probably from, you know, you know, more understanding in terms of scientific research with regards to injury management, with regards to recovery strategies, strength and conditioning. Yeah, it, it, you know, it definitely has advanced in some areas. Um, probably the methodology of how things are delivered has certainly changed and improved. Um, but then equally, you know, some instances there's still the same issues that probably arise. There's still people that would have some of the injuries that we're seeing now, but may well just have either carried on. Um, and and soldiered on through things, and may, but that may have just been because there wasn't the the imaging that was you know has been developed in recent years. Um, yeah, so but I'm sure from the day to day side of things, other than delivery of say more of your manual skills or just having the manpower to be able to to perform such tasks is is probably similar. Um, you know, again as as. So I would say, you know, he's, he's done strappings throughout his career. There's always been soft tissue work. There's different techniques and different fad treatments that come along, which people explore and try. Um, are they any better than what was in the past? I don't really know. It's probably nothing to quantify it to, to say that it is any better or it's not any better. I suppose in the old days, people would, there would be no subs. They would play 11 v 11 every single week. They'd play a million replays. They'd play 60-plus games during the year with no squad. And they would just play through injuries. I suppose one of the massive things that's changed over the years is you foreseeing when injuries might occur and then, obviously, players then resting. So, Adam, from your from your point of view, mm-hmm. um, how does it work in regards to foreseeing injuries and then asking players to rest? Yeah, I swear... I suppose a lot of it goes down to clinical reasoning. We're talking, as you mentioned, like what's changed, kind of the uh, future of physio, like how it's developed. One of the key things um, I think has changed is the level of screening and monitoring you can do these days with force plates. For example, we also use uh, um, AI intelligence, so artificial intelligence to 
um, map trends in a few different metrics like GPS, jump data. And so what those um, companies will work and what they do, they can help predict where loads for certain players should be lower on days and when players start to become a high risk for... They can even go down to like certain body parts, for example, to say, oh, actually this person's a high risk of a hamstring injury due to the fluctuation in their GPS data. Maybe they've been underloaded high-speed running, so it makes you think we need to make sure we top them up with faster speed running to help protect the protective mechanism. So yeah, I think that's definitely... a big future involvement and I see more teams going that way using analytics and technology as a it's always a, like a, a safety net for example there still needs to you got to still got to use your head and understand is that the first time that player's done 90 minutes for a while are they going to be sore two days after and uh, you got to think of all it lots of all this multifactorial but I think that's um, that's the future of kind of uh, injury prevention really kind of picking up those um, bits before they happen because when they do happen they're big time loss injuries and the higher level injuries and you know cost the club a lot of money and also cost a lot of performance drops of certain players that you use so I think yeah that's the way forward. And at what point Chris do you actually say to the manager this player doesn't need to rest or do you set in a way that these you know do you give them a list these are the players who might need a rest like how does it go about when we see on the tv that a player's you know rested on a tuesday because he played on a saturday is that just the manager knowing or the physio telling him how does it go about i think it's a very fluid process and it depends on your environment or which whatever club you're at everyone will have their own um ways of doing things um, as Adam will know, QPRs, you know, will have their own process of doing things, and Luton Town will have their own way of doing it, depending on the coaches and the, the personnel in place. Um, it, it's it's one of those whereby, as Adam alluded to, with all the screening that's used, there's always players that will flag up as potential red, amber, and greens, and you kind of highlight those and say, look, there's potential risk based on X, Y, and Z, uh, without going into too much detail on it. But you you can highlight there's a potential risk. It's then kind of a it will always lead to a conversation between everybody because, let's be honest, it's an, it's an elite sport and, and the result at the end of the day is the important part. Now, from our point of view, we can highlight the risk. It may well be that it's a cup final that the player and coaching staff are desperate for them to, to be there and to perform and it may provide success for the football club. So it then comes down to a conversation of you know weighing up that risk and all that potential risk and, and a decision will be formulated from there and it will either be... Okay, the, the the benefit is to to look after, or to they may well be limited in terms of the amount of minutes they may well play. Equally, it may be right. Coaches, staff, and players are happy to take a risk and and they go ahead with it. And it may well be a risk that pays off, and no harm may be done. So it's just kind of our role is trying to evaluate that risk and looking at as much as we can from a subjective and objective point of view, and saying right where do we lie, and, and providing the best information to all parties involved. Does it ever get quite heated with either of you, with, with management, where you're like, this player's got to rest his ACL or his hamstring's going to go, you've got to rest him? Yeah, it, it can be. And that's something that when you get into sport that you kind of, as I've already said the same, you have to be, when you have uncomfortable conversations, right, can be heated as long as you stay true to yourself and put forward what you think's best. You know, we always want the availability for players to be there. And we all want players to train and, and stay fit. But yeah, there is times where um, 
yeah, you have to kind of fight your corner and decide what's what's right. And sometimes it's not always the popular answer that everybody wants, but sometimes it's the right if you want to keep a say a player coming back from a long term injury and you don't want to do two ninety games in in a week because they're coming back. Yeah, sometimes you have to kind of speak up. But they have lots of those conversations in elite sport where it's not um, so good good conversations to have but it can be uncomfortable, but you have to be able to put your view across and that's how everyone gets better and develops because you're all, you know, so you're all trying to push for the pinnacle, which is performance. So all those good conversations lead to better care for players. And Chris, what does your working week actually look like? Uh, it's probably a great question to ask my wife, actually. She would say that I'm always at work. Um yeah, we it, again, it, the Championship's pretty relentless schedule, so fixtures get changed here, there and everywhere in terms of TV selections and when you play, sometimes it'll be Friday night, Saturday lunchtime, afternoons, etc. and so on and so on, as everyone will know. Um, so the week kind of is dictated to, obviously, by the fixture. But typically, uh, we'll, you know, we'll train throughout the week. We're in early doors, we're making sure we're trying to get them, one, look after the players that are fit, making sure we maintain their availability via all... Uh, that's available to us um, and then on, on that daily basis also we're trying to then manage those players that are injured and trying to maximise their treatment that's available and get them back in as quick but most importantly as safe process that, that they return they can have an impact on the team when they are there so that's kind of the day to day throughout the week. There's what hours would you? What hours do you normally start and what hours do you normally finish on a normal training day? Great question. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if there is a normal training day. I'd have probably back me up on that. It varies massively. What time do you normally leave for work? Let's start with that one then. Um, yeah. Well, this, this this morning I left home at, I think it was half six, just to get a little man to nursery and then get straight to work. So I was in there work. There you go. For, and then what time were you seven. back? What time were you back from work today? Uh, I got home about 20 past six, I think it was today. So it's a lot long days. Yeah, it can be. But then equally, you know, there's other days where it can be longer because there's been days where we've been in from, say, seven in the morning for, for breakfast and you have a fixture at 7.45. So by the time you get in for breakfast, you don't your fixture is until seven forty five. But there's there's numerous other things to tick off on your daily list before you even get to the game. And then do you go to the game, and then do you stay until the last players kind of left after the game as well? Yeah, yeah, just to make sure you tie up all loose ends and make sure there's no other issues ahead of going into either the next next day when you're in or or the next training day. I was going to say next day. Normally the player gets a day off after a game, but are you in? handling the players that are injured and stuff the next day do you ever get a day off <laughs> yeah. I'll let you answer that one Ed yeah well, it's normally kind of on a rotor right but yeah normally the the way I work is because I cover mainly like the rehab side, so I'm more kind of uh, training ground based. So I'll kind of be in on the on the Sundays to pick up any large injuries at the game, and then to to keep the rehabs ticking over. But like I said, the day, days can vary. You know, you know, a good week you can get a day off during the week. Like, don't get me wrong, it's, if you want to work in uh, in football or an elite sport, you sometimes you have to. There's a bit of sacrifice for time with family, the erratic hours. And I suppose it's not just, you know, I, for example, Timothy Chris dropped, so I have a young daughter dropped her off. I was in the gym at half six, so I did worked out myself. And then we have meetings in the morning where we do any checks from any injuries. And then we have a medical meeting with sports science. 
and then we go through the plan of the day for the players, what they're going to do, what kind of happens in the, what's going to happen in training and any gym or anything else after. And then the players will come for breakfast. They'll do all their pre-act, any checks, any manual work. Then they'll go out on the pitch and do their training. And then the rehabs will then um, go and start start their day. And then their day will involve the gym or to go take them to a swimming pool or CV, anything uh any other option so it, it can be a long days and I think a lot of it's the planning behind the scenes because once the players you know leave early we're kind of thinking what's the plan for the next day what's the next two weeks for this rehab and it's more kind of conversations I suppose can lead into the evening you know it's not unusual probably Chris is like you can message at 11 at night half 11 a player might message you saying oh I've got a tight uh, hamstring or groin and you kind of have to act act on those so um, not as much as, as the doc will get, but we, I feel like you know you can be on call quite a lot. But that's kind of kind of part of it, I suppose, because you that's what we do as a medical or caring profession. So, so when do you get to take your holidays? Is it in the off season when the players are off? Yeah, exactly. So it will be in the off season, and luckily we have, we have a slightly bigger team than Chris. But we'll kind of divide the weeks up, like one physio and therapist will cover each week. So, um, you know, if you can get them together, sometimes you get, you know, three, three and a bit weeks off uh, during the off season. I know Critters was shorter last season because they did really well, made the playoffs. So that, you know, if you made the playoffs and didn't make it, then it eats into, eats into your holiday, which probably everyone, you know, wants a holiday. So yeah, the holidays are, uh, a, yeah, a decent time. Sometimes international breaks as well. You know, if your injuries are low, there might be opportunity to have like a, you know, a three-day weekend. So sometimes uh, if everything's going smoothly, kind of results dependent, dependent on the manager and dependent on, for us or me and Chris probably, for how many injuries uh, are there for long-termers. But yeah, we don't get time off during the season. You've got to have supportive wives because really you're effectively live a life like a, a footballer. Actually, you you work longer hours than a footballer footballer will often finish at like two o'clock or whatever and go and play golf and you're still there working so you must have very supportive wives yeah yeah we do (laughs) what about christmas day do you have to work christmas day because i know the football players go in christmas day yeah normally all it depends how how the game falls as well if you're away then yeah they will travel but yeah normally around christmas is our busiest period especially you know, um, for Sky Sports fixtures and there's a lot of fixtures around Christmas to entertain everyone when they're off. So, yeah, it's probably our busiest period and also one of our busiest period for injuries uh, peaking around that point as well. It's congested fixture lists. So. so do players yeah. always have injuries? Is there always some kind of niggle through the season? Because that's what you know, that's what I've kind of heard. We always think that they just look like they play 100% all the time. But what what's it actually like? Have they always got niggles and bruises and ice, icing themselves? How does it actually work? Yeah, I think that to some degree there's, there's always something going on. I don't think you can train at the, and, and play at the level that they do without that. I think that's probably the, one of the biggest eye-openers I had when going into elite sport is, is looking at the these boys and seeing what they can tolerate basically on a day-to-day and a weekly basis and and even more so in this division where everything is um, very much intense week on week and with such a quick turnaround. I think um, Andy Williams, uh, a, a big surgeon, I listened to a podcast of his where he spoke about um, 
this kind of stigma with footballers and, and people kind of question how much pain and whatnot they tolerate. But he, he summed it up really nicely and said, if you see on a daily basis what they can actually push themselves to do to run uh, at the intensity and the volumes that they do, you'd kind of you'd change your, your, your stance on that and definitely say these boys are, are tough. Yeah, for sure. I agree as well. You know, coming from a rugby background, where you know, you know, pop some pain relief at half time on your run, take a few knocks, no problem. But yeah, they, I have to take my half. They put in a serious amount of work, and and they're always in. You know, maybe get two days in it, a Saturday to Saturday. You know, off, but they're in early. They graft hard, high intensity on the pitch. They have to keep their bodies in 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 top nick. And like Chris said, like they do get, you know compared to the general province they get paid well but if you know if any of us could do their job then we'd get paid the same but we i can't do what they do so um yeah i, I take my hat off to the to the levels that the human body can be pushed and it's getting pushed all the time right so the players are getting faster more powerful um the levels of injuries are still occurring regarding hamstrings like the hamstring prevalence is still really high regarding all through the years so it shows that you know they're getting leaner faster more powerful and you can see that in you know as you look at premier league another step up again in that sort of level uh, what about 3g pitches obviously they've they come and they've gone and especially in the lower leagues they're more prevalent now will you see more injuries with those types of pitches so yeah go ahead chris yeah it's probably one of those that isn't like you say it's kind of been trialed a little bit um in England in terms of the lower leagues or historically and kind of phased out a little bit um, but it's one of those it's probably a big bigger question for the youth and the academy players nowadays who train and play on on artificial surfaces all the time um, there's probably not masses of research to indicate that there is any kind of increase but there was nothing to compare that to previously that's the difficult part in terms of looking at it from a scientific st- uh, viewpoint but you know, from some of the lads that we see and the amount of work that they they do weekly, they you know there's there's potentially something to attribute to these surfaces in terms of some kind of whether it be biomechanical or some some hip related or groin related pathologies. Um, you know, there's some some cases whereby again you you speak to other clinicians who have been around far longer than I have, and they would say that yeah they've seen a kind of shift in the last 10, 15 years as these surfaces have become a lot more common and commonly used, that some injuries are kind of more routinely seen, if you like, um, compared to, say, 10, 15 years ago. Yep. And then question for you as well. What's what's the best part of your your jobs? What's the bit that you both enjoy? We'll start with you, Chris. For me, I, I, I love the interaction being around the group. Uh, we've got a great group of lads to be fair we've got a great staff and it you know just from working with good people helps because it helps you want to flourish and become better um, but for me I just the, the day-to-day of working with your rehab cases and going from you run on the pitch from day zero you see the incident happen you think okay we've got a problem here uh, particularly those longer term ones the acute management's over and you take them through down day and you have some you know as, as the athletes have some real tough days and it becomes a problem solving between everybody as a team and when they return however many months down the line you you're there to see them go back on a pitch and succeed and do well you know it's a real it's, you get that kind of inner proud moment but you're more proud for them because you've seen them and you work with them every day for that duration and you and you, you understand what it's taken for them everybody else from the outside just sees okay great they've been out for nine months they're back 
but don't, doesn't get to see all that hard work. So that's kind of the rewarding side of things. And as Adam said already, it's why we do it. It's that caring nature of being a physio, really. And then that's that's you know what we do, if you like. And what about for you, Adam? What are the best bits? Yeah, I suppose similar. Well, one of the be- yeah best things is you know I always want to win. I will regardless. Like when we play Leeton, like you always I'll, win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But yeah, I always performance is key. Like it's great feeling. Chris will tell you. You know, you get a couple wins. The week goes a lot smoother. You feel really good. There's a good skip around the training ground, and everyone's uh, happy. But yeah, I obviously spend a lot of my time with the rehabs. You know can be anything to six to eight months or even longer some of the long-term ones and yeah like Chris said you build up that rapport with that person and you know we're seeing them way more hours than we see our family or friends so you develop a bond and when you can execute it and they can come back uh, from a big injury and also you know we're always hoping to better them when they come back so they come back and then they perform well and you know, make a big impact on the team. That's uh, one of the the, be- the best feelings because uh, unless you kind of inside and realise how much kind of work goes into one rehab, there's uh, so many extra factors that go into it. You can never appreciate how much when they get back on the pitch that it's taken to get to that point, and then to that point to be able to perform consistently in the championships. Like a is a big ask. It's one of the most you know competitive match. Um, most matches in a in the league, so yeah, yeah it's important. It's a, it's a great league. I love the championship. I'm a, I'm a Southampton fan, so we we oh, had, okay. we've had some years there. And the year we got promoted, um, going down through the leagues and coming back up, it's an amazing feeling. So hopefully, one at least one of you two boys will will, will make it up this year. And uh, I bet it's amazing to be part of a club. Obviously, Chris, you've had it going up through the leagues already. It must be amazing to be part of a club and then getting promoted. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's great. I've been very fortunate. It's always been kind of been an upward trend since I uh, fortunately joined, and then we was very close last season as well. And you kind of, it's like Adam says, when you you get the win, it you're riding away for that week until the next game. And unfortunately for us, it kind of rolled on, kept rolling on. And you know, as everybody knows, we got to the playoffs last year, just narrowly missed out um, against Huddersfield. But for the whole build up of that, you know, it was it was a great experience to be a part of, and it's one that you just have to enjoy. I think you, uh, people ask you the question if you know how is it and and whatnot and obviously there's challenges, there's stresses that come along with it, but ultimately we knew that coming into the role, so or into the profession, so you just have to enjoy it and actually yeah, appreciate all the work you put in before that has got you to that place. So you must have a, a lot to do psychologically with them as well, especially if the injuries are massive, obviously. They you hear a lot about players getting depression, for example, if they're out for six months to a year, it's very lonely for them. And then also, if they've come off the back of a loss, you must be part of that network to try and bring them back up and give them confidence. Is is that a big part of your job as well, Adam? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. So I'll touch on the the rehab side. So like you said, after a big injury, you know they. They don't think it's a lot, and all of a sudden, you know, the surgeon's seeing them, and then they get rushed in in a few days to have a, a, a big surgery, for example. So, realization normally comes about a week or two after when they have the realization this is going to be a, a long run and they're uncomfortable. Um, so, definitely have to be mindful of that, and you got to know. Um, know the player well we have you know psychological measures that we use um we have stuff in conjunction with the club that we can direct them or signpost them but sometimes it you know as chris will probably say it's just listening and 
you know, guiding them through that. We've seen multiple injuries and we know like how the route goes and you kind of just have to support the player and stick to the process, keep them busy, which is a key thing. And I find also during that uh, longer periods is having something outside of football to focus on. One of my recent rehabs learned a different language through an ACL. So he learned French, for example. Um, he was keen on that anyway, but having something separate well, because... Footballers were all stupid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a bit of a myth. So you can you can set them different tasks or if they're into watching TV series or, or just something totally different away from football because when they're not a footballer, when they're not out on the pitch playing... Um, it's hard. They feel like you know they can lose a bit of their identity of, of who they are. So I think um, uh, there's lots of different techniques you can use for that. So yeah, that's from a rehab point of view. And after you said after a, a big uh, loss or win, I think the key thing to keep everyone is just keep like level headed. I always think to keep um, whatever big decisions I'm making or how it's feeling. You just want to be steady, like in the middle, like happy get on with it. If they lose, okay, we focus on the next game because you can't change what happened, but you can change what happens in the future. So I always try to say to players, be very like present at the time. So if you can be present and move forward, yeah, you want to reflect a little bit if there's mistakes made and sharpen up. But I think for staff members, we can't get too super excited and we can't get too super down because the players are in the physio room quite a lot and we have really... Uh, good interactions with them you know good banter good chats about everything like crystal name like everyone knows pretty much most about every player that goes in there and chats so we got to keep very level-headed and, um, and keep that momentum moving because we don't influence the group if we come in depressed or or down or have a bad day i'm not showing that to, to anyone i'm just going to keep steady and Chris, do you ever have it where obviously most most football players love the game, but there are some where it is just you know it's a job and they can't wait to the day that they retire. Do you have it sometimes where you feel have you ever had it where a player might not be as injured as as, as he says he is, and you know you 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 might have to say to the gaffer just to let you know I don't I don't think he's actually that injured. I think he's pulling a hard one here. I think on the whole, these boys play at a level they do because they are so physically and mentally resilient. Um, so it's if it has done a buyer not picked up on it or it's kind of an isolated instant. Um, uh, again, you got yeah, you like as you alluded to, there's players that that will probably love football more than others, but equally, I don't think they could probably play at the level they do without having that inner drive in some capacity. Um, it might be the odd training day where. One or two of them might try and you know might not be as uh, fresh if you like and might not want to push themselves as much as as possible. But I think that's kind of part of the modern player actually knowing how to look after themselves a little bit better as well. Particularly the older lads, I think that's where our role comes into play. And you, regardless of how much objective information you have on the player, it's sometimes just having a simple conversation with them uh, and asking how they feel, and they may well just give you a, a good enough answer where you accept it and say, look, maybe they do need a little a day off or data, you know, monitor their load and make sure we're not overexerting them so they are ready to go at the weekend. And and as I say, at this at this level, Adam will probably vouch for it as well that they they you know they 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 push themselves to that degree and and you kind of trust that more than anything, particularly once you have that rapport with them. And how does it work, Chris, when you do when you sign a player and you do a medical? Talk us through the process of how that works. Yeah, so. Uh, again, each club will do things their own 
particular way. From our point of view, we would always do a um, a clinical assessment from our medical department. So that includes Simon, myself, uh, particularly looking at the musculoskeletal side of things as our, from our physio perspective. Our doctor will be involved with looking at most of the medical side of things in terms of general medical, past medical history. Um, we always will kind of do our research on players prior to that. Again, fortunately, the higher you go, the more information there is about their injury history because it's typically controversial as well. I speculate in the press a lot of the time, but you can kind of get an idea as to that history. And you kind of run through and you essentially you investigate those areas, if you like, and see how they've how they present with it and how they've probably recovered with it as well. On top of that, then we will do some some imaging, MRI typically, um, total body to have a look at those areas and get some more information. That's not from a point of view to catch anybody out. It's just to kind of provide a little bit more context and build part of the puzzle. It doesn't formulate any kind of decisions. And that, you know, that's all we kind of, we lead to. We, we go along that, build our, build our picture puzzle and say, right, are we happy where where we're at? And it becomes more of a risk assessment for our side of things rather than a pass or a fail. It's a, okay, how much risk is involved with this player based on the clinical, the history, and the imaging that we see? And is that potentially going to lead you, it will lead them to have any problems for the duration of their time that they're at that football club? Yeah, because Adam, you often find that players are signed with, with injuries. It's not like, you, they only take them on when they're a hundred percent fit. So I, you guys must have a big part in whether you feel it's worth the risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've had a few in the last few seasons that have come pre-injured to us actually. Um, so yeah, like Chris said, it's nailing down previous injury history is key. How many match minutes? I want to see what they've done in the last four or five seasons. You know, are they able to have good outputs? Because, you know, the board are going to ask, like, you know, is it a good investment? Can they play 40-plus games a season or are they going to play less? So it is very tricky and it is a risk stratification. We can only put forward what we think is, like, low, medium or high risk for the players. And then it's up to the board and manager, you know, if, they, if they're going to sign them. And then if they do, then we'll work as hard to, to rehab them back and, and make sure, you know, they, they perform well for us. But, yeah, that's a really tricky part of the jobs, uh, especially doing um, signings and testing them and those bits. So it would be great just to end with any funny stories you guys have got, especially if there's any, like, random injuries that players have got. You know, when you accidentally stub and break your toe walking down the stairs or something. <laughs> have, you got any, have you got any funny ones that you could share with us? Um, that you're allowed to, allowed to mention? Um, uh, well, we had one player who... Obviously, I won't say names. Who come in one morning with a uh, a sock wedged between his big toe and his second toe, covered in blood, hobbling in, wondering what's going on. Um, he apparently slipped down the stairs and got his toes caught in, or alongside a radiator pipe. Where I don't know whether how, how accurate it was or <laughs> whatever it is, an alternative story that goes with it. But that was an interesting one. So he had to go straight off to A and E and get some stitches put in that. Yeah, our, our guys are all too honest. I think I've got uh, too many obscure ones. They're uh, they just come out of it. So, do you ever get players who literally just get random injuries at home though, where not football related? Yeah, I suppose the, there's one that I can remember actually. It was um, I think he had a new puppy or 
or kitten or cat. I think it was a puppy, and a puppy shot out the door at home. He said he was chasing it, then tripped over and then turned his ankle as he was chasing it out, trying to catch it before it went into the road. So, you know, he tried to believe that kind of theory. I, I tell you what, if, if you were a physio at a different club, one in East London, and there was a cat story involved, then, then yeah. I'd probably question him tripping over the cat. So. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. So sometimes you have to question it, uh, but ultimately we, we have to end up fixing it, unfortunately. So, and then going to tell the relevant people what's happened so great well thank you for coming on guys it's been a real joy finding out what it's like to be a a physio at a professional football club and good luck with the seasons i hope both of you guys and teams have some good seasons and uh let's let's stay in touch and and catch up again one day perfect thanks james thank you very much james thank you for listening to the life in football podcast make sure you follow us on twitter at life in footy and check out our previous podcast with the likes of Darren Bent, Sam Matterface and Jules Breach.